Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Bed Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, the last naval battle of the American Revolution took place off of Florida's East Coast, an event on Saturday, March 12th at the Veterans Memorial Center in Merritt Island will commemorate that battle. I think in my article I referred to it as a two-ship treasure fleet on a secret mission to secure funding to pay the American soldiers that had been pretty much languishing for almost two years without pay in upstate New York and other places throughout the colonies. The new opera The Secret River, commissioned by Opera Orlando, is based on a story by Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings. You may not be aware of The Secret River, her 1956 Newbery Prize-winning children's book, the only book Rollins wrote specifically for children. And we'll discuss feminist Roxy Bolton. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. The sons, daughters, and children of the American Revolution are commemorating the last naval battle of the American Revolution at the Veterans Memorial Center in Merritt Island. The event begins at 10 a.m. on Saturday, March 12th. James Ward is president of the Sons of the American Revolution Brevard Chapter. It is a hereditary organization in the sense that uh, all the members have proven rather, <laughs> have faced rather strict examination of their family history. Uh, and they can show a direct line to um, a, a, um, somebody who contributed to the Revolutionary War cause. At the same time, it is one of the more inclusive of the Revolutionary War um, organizations, because there are several, in the sense that their criteria for how did people contribute is broader than some. The British controlled Florida from 1763 to 1783, encompassing the entire American Revolution. Florida remained loyal to England and King George III throughout the conflict. As colonial historian Roger Smith explains, the British separated Florida into two regions, with Pensacola the capital of West Florida and St. Augustine the capital of East Florida. In West Florida, Probably 98%, as, as, as historians have, have, have guessed as much as, and estimated as much as 98% of the uh, trade that went throughout uh, West Florida actually went through uh, New Orleans, which was illegal. Uh, because of the Navigation Acts, everything was supposed to go to, to England and then be put on new ships and shipped to whatever the destination was. So it would have to have gone from, say, Mobile to England and then back to New Orleans. 
So they just said, forget this, you know, we're gonna send it down the river. So they were loyal to whatever system worked best. And what worked best was that the British basically left them alone and they did whatever they wanted to. In East Florida, it was a different situation. Um, in East Florida, they hadn't made basically a dime from 1763 to 1774. From 1774 uh, on, the, the colony became prosperous because of the peace with the Seminoles. And uh, once the colony became prosperous, um, on, uh, on August 11, 1776, news of the, uh, the Declaration of Independence reached St. Augustine. And a large crowd gathered in the plaza with effigies of Samuel Adams and uh, John Hancock, and they hung them in trees and set them on fire because the attitude was like, okay, we haven't made any money for 11 years and you want us to do what? You know, so it was, uh, it was very much, it, it wasn't like the rest of the, of the colonies where it was, uh, you know, estimated at a, a third loyal, a third patriot, and a third just leave me alone. In East Florida, it was every man adamantly loyal to king and country. The last naval battle of the American Revolution took place off of the east coast of Florida on March 10, 1783. Two American ships, the Alliance and the Duc de Lazune, were on a mission to bring 72,000 Spanish silver dollars from Cuba to the American colonies to pay the Continental soldiers. The American ships were intercepted by three British ships, the Alarm, the Sybil, and the Tobago. According to a state historic marker, the last naval battle of the American Revolution took place off of Cape Canaveral. New research conducted by Molly Thomas demonstrates that the battle actually took place somewhere between West Palm Beach and Boca Raton. Thomas wrote about her findings in a series of articles published in the Indian River Journal. I think in my article I referred to it as a two-ship treasure fleet on a secret mission to secure funding to pay the American soldiers that had been pretty much languishing for almost two years without pay in uh, upstate New York and other places throughout the colonies. Some American Revolution enthusiasts still believe that the last naval battle took place off of Cape Canaveral. What's certain is that the battle took place in the Atlantic Ocean off of Florida's east coast. James Ward. Well, that event uh, actually also included uh, a couple other entities, uh, France and Spain, that had not too long beforehand uh, decided to uh, enter the conflict. And really, England was facing uh, an existential uh, threat at that point, and their focus was shifting more and more to those two powers. But I bring them up because the Spanish were kind enough to uh, provide 72,000 coins, silver coins, from their um, North American and South American mines to the um, Patriots, and those were being shipped north. And that's why the two ships were coming north. The French uh, were interested in um, helping, so they had a ship in the area, and the British were interested in uh, not allowing that to happen. And that sets the stage. As the American ships carrying much-needed funds for the Continental Army met with the British ships determined to stop them, one ship from each side took the lead in battle. Molly Thomas. Basically, you had two ships sailing north, and you had three ships sailing south. The ships heading north were the Americans, and the three sailing south were the British. And um, only the Alliance and the Sybil really engaged. The other two, the Tobago and the Alarm, kind of lingered back a little bit and didn't get involved in the fight. And the Duke de Lazune just did its best to stay out of it because it couldn't keep up with any of them. So they would have really just seen the Alliance and the Sybil 
going at it together. Robert Morris of the Continental Congress was the mastermind of the secret plan to bring Spanish money from Cuba to fund the American Revolution. His plan would lead to the last naval battle of the war. He was the chief financier for a lot of things to do with the military, and he was also what they called an agent of Marine, which is basically like the secretary of the Navy now. And he was a self-made shipping mogul, so he had a lot of connections both in buying and selling ships, so he actually purchased the Duke de Lazun himself, and he also had a, a lot of access to just in networking with people in other ports, so he was able to coordinate them going down to Havana to secure this money from a French financier. Ironically, the Treaty of Paris was signed more than a month before the last naval battle of the American Revolution occurred. No one in the Americas knew that the war was over because word had not yet arrived from Europe. That knowledge might not have made a difference because America really needed the money from Cuba. Molly Thomas. The Battle of Yorktown had already happened. Everything had stopped for the most part as far as the hostilities went, but they wouldn't disband the army um, despite all the times that, and the many letters that George Washington had sent, they, they refused to disband it because they didn't actually believe that they were going to come to any terms. So for that two-year window after Yorktown and then this battle, the, the soldiers were not paid and they didn't have the money to pay them. The HMS Sybil under James Vashon and the USS Alliance under John Barry were the two ships engaged in the last naval battle of the American Revolution. The Sybil started to go after the Duke. The, the Duke was a smaller ship, by far a slower ship, and whether or not they had realized it, before they actually engaged with the Americans, the Duke had thrown off most of her cannons and ammunition to try to be faster, to lessen the load. So they knew that that was the weaker of the two ships, and based on intelligence that I would have loved to find the source of, um, they were looking for the Lazun. They, they knew that ship had the actual money on it. They didn't know that most of it had been removed by that point, but that's who they were going after. And Vashon was not really wanting to engage with the Alliance, but when the Alliance saw her opportunity to get in between them, she did. So that's basically when the actual fight started. Thomas says the other ships present didn't get involved in the battle. The Alarm and the Tobago didn't really get involved at all. In fact, as I found out towards the end of this three-article series, they basically hoisted the flags of retreat almost immediately as soon as the Alliance flipped around and, and got in between the Sybil and the Duke. So they, they didn't want to engage. Now, whether they didn't want to engage because of, I guess for lack of a better term, prowess of the Alliance and her captain, I'm not sure. But at this time, nobody, none of them would have known that the war had actually come to an end. So it's interesting to me that even though they could have probably, between the three of them, easily taken those two ships, that they didn't. And particularly since they did know what was on board. At the end of the American Revolution, control of Florida returned to the Spanish. Roger Smith. That is one of those factors stranger than fiction kind of stories. The, the British, um, they believed uh, they, had, they had repelled three invasions into East Florida, 
and they had been involved in uh, the, the invasions, uh, incursions uh, of the British into Georgia, holding Georgia. Some of these men had fought uh, in, in approaching uh, Charleston, and they believed, kind of like the Canadians, that when the war was over, they were the only colony south of the, the Canadian border that never lowered the Union Jack. So they believed that they had earned their right to remain a, a British colony uh, just like the, Canada had. Uh, the problem was at the end of the war, the, the Spanish came along and said, okay, we're sitting here at the, uh, at, the, at the Treaty of Paris, we want Gibraltar. And the British said, look, you tried twice during the conflict to take back Gibraltar. You lost both times. We're not going to just hand it to you. As a matter of fact, if you want, we can go back to war over Gibraltar. I mean, that controlled, you know, the, the, the flow of everything in and out of the, the Mediterranean. So, uh, so the, the British, kind of being British, they said, I'll tell you what we'll do. You captured West Florida, we're going to let you keep it, okay? And, and just because we're nice guys, we're going to throw in East Florida. So you can have back what you had all those years. And it absolutely sucker punched the, uh, the loyalists here in East Florida because so many of them had sacrificed lives and families and, and their fortunes to come down here to, to maintain some kind of a base here. And now they're being handed back for, for political reasons. They found themselves nothing but pawns in, uh, in, in, the, uh, in the empire. The last naval battle of the American Revolution took place on March 10, 1783. The commemoration of that event is being held Saturday, March 12th at the Veterans Memorial Center in Merritt Island. James Ward. We're looking at it as an opportunity uh, for people to remember the sacrifices and contributions of our uh, Revolutionary War patriots. So there will be um, some uh, review of that history. There will also be um, an active duty um, commander of the Naval Ordnance Test Unit, Captain Snyder and he will talk about how all this links to the modern Navy. We will have various people from representing various parts of the Revolutionary War organizations, including the National and the State of Florida, SAR, as well as the Daughters of the American Revolution, as well as the Children of the American Revolution. So we have quite a few there. We're expecting quite a number of veterans because, after all, these were, in a sense, our first veterans. And we are also encouraging the uh, public to attend because that's our core mission. We want to keep alive the memory of these patriots. We want to keep alive the understanding of what they faced and what they did that uh, went well. And we'll even acknowledge some things that didn't go so well. An artillery team will demonstrate the firing of weapons, a blood donation bus will be on hand, and lunch will be available for $15, a portion of which will benefit homeless veterans and other veterans' services. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. The 2022 Florida Historical Society Public History Forum and the 33rd Annual Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings Society Conference will be presented together May 19th through 21st in Gainesville. There will be panel discussions, tours of historic sites and museums, a banquet dinner with Rawlings biographer Ann McCutcheon, and much more. Registration information is at myfloridahistory.org. That's myfloridahistory.org.
Joining us now is Connie Lester, Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. Connie, Carlisle Floyd was probably the best-known Florida-based opera composer, and he focused mostly on Southern themes, but you recently attended a world premiere by a living Florida composer focusing on a Florida theme. What was it about? Just before Christmas, I had the pleasure of attending the world premiere of an opera that brought together the creative work of two Florida treasures, Marjorie Cannon Rawlings and Dr. Stella Sung, who is an endowed trustees professor and a Pegasus professor at the University of Central Florida. The Secret River was based on the posthumously published children's book of the same name, written by Rawlings. Sung composed the music, and Mark Campbell was the librettist. Most of our listeners are probably familiar with the work of Rawlings, likely having been introduced to her book The Yearling in middle school or high school. Visits to her Cross Creek home or articles in the Florida Historical Quarterly may have rounded out your knowledge of the author and her prize-winning literary career. You may not be aware of The Secret River, her 1956 Newbery Prize-winning children's book, the only book Rollins wrote specifically for children. In the book, Rawlings tells the story of a black child and her community without dialect that was so common to white Southern writers of the era. Her characters are not caricatures, but strong and vibrant people. The story focuses on Calpurnia, who lived in Florida during the Great Depression. Hard times have caused the fish and wild animals to disappear from the streams and forests, and the people of her community are hungry and discouraged. Her father, a fisherman, has no fish to sell in his shop, and her parents are worried about the future. Calpurnia consults with Mother Alberta, who lives in the forest and whose reputation evokes respect and fear in Calpurnia's classmates. Mother Alberta tells Calpurnia about a secret river that is filled with fish, and the girl sets off with her dog to locate the river and help her parents in the community. At the river, she catches fish of every variety. While returning home, she encounters an owl, a bear, and a panther. Each challenges her for her catch, and she shares the fish that will satisfy their individual needs. The food she brings to the community reinvigorates the people, and they are inspired to recommit themselves to overcome the hardships of the Depression. Calpurnia attempts to find the river for a second time, but is unsuccessful in her efforts. She learns that the river is not lost, but is there only when needed. Through the creative mind of Stella Sung, the story, which literary critics label an example of magical realism, loses none of its enchantment. Indeed, set to music and imaginatively staged, the story comes alive. It is a family opera that engages the imagination, a straightforward story in which the child plays the central role, not as a coming-of-age story, but as the important character caught in the hardship of life who acts creatively to save her community. The magic of the story is preserved in the music and words and in the use of puppets to depict the animals, puppets made of the physical objects of daily life that require the audience to use their imaginations in a childlike manner. 
It is a story for our time, simultaneously an acknowledgement of hardship and struggle, a message for hope for the human capacity to work together to find solutions, and a call for creative and magical thinking. That sounds really exciting. I'm looking forward to seeing it. How will our listeners have an opportunity to see this production? I'm glad you asked that. I wouldn't describe this Florida arts production and leave our listeners thinking, what a wonderful opera. Sorry I missed it. Mark your calendars for May 19 through 21, 2022. That's when the Florida Historical Society Public History Forum will meet in Gainesville, together with the 33rd Annual Marjorie Cannon Rawlings Society Conference. Attendees will have an opportunity to visit Cross Creek, hear Anne McCutcheon, the author of the award-winning biography of Rawlins, The Life She Wished to Live, and view the film of the opera, The Secret River. As I was thinking about this segment of Florida Frontiers, I was reminded of the opening lines of McCutcheon's book, quote, When Marjorie Cannon was nine years old, her mother, convinced she'd birthed a nightingale, took the child to a voice teacher near their home in Washington, D.C. for an audition. The man listened to Marjorie sing a ditty and offered a quick assessment. Do not waste one cent, madam, he said. I do not always dare to be so positive, for adolescence, maturity, often change the whole texture of a voice. But here, no, never. Marjorie Cannon Rawlings was no singer, but through the work of Stella Sung, Mark Campbell, and the actor-vocalists of the opera, The Secret River, her words found song. It's a fascinating production that we're lucky to have captured on film. Thanks, Connie. You're welcome. Connie Lester is Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. This is Florida Frontiers. We celebrate women's history all year long, but March is Women's History Month. Holly Baker has this look at feminist Roxy Bolton. Feminist Roxy O'Neill Bolton was a leading advocate for women's rights in Florida from the 1950s until her death in 2017. In 1957, Roxy Bolton was an organizing member of the Democratic Women's Club in Florida and the charter president of the Dade County Chapter of NOW, the National Organization for Women. In 1969, she was elected as National Vice President of NOW. Dr. Kimberly Voss is a tenured professor of journalism at the University of Central Florida in Orlando. She's also the author of several books, including Women Politicking Politely, Advancing Feminism in the 1960s and 1970s. Dr. Voss told me more about Roxy Bolton. Roxy Bolton is a relatively unknown name, but she made a big difference in the lives of women in Florida and across the country. And there's a lot of women like this, I think, who did things behind the scenes, made a difference, but didn't necessarily make a name for themselves in such a way to attract attention to themselves. So they helped others almost at the cost of um, who they were historically. 
Roxy Bolton worked tirelessly for women's rights in Florida. In 1972, she founded Women in Distress, the first women's rescue shelter in Florida, offering housing, legal aid, and other services for victims of violence. In 1974, she founded the Miami Rape Treatment Center to assist victims of sexual abuse and rape. She was a great community organizer. She was well-connected. She had the personal phone numbers of politicians in her back pocket. She knew which reporters were going to be sympathetic to her cause because she was really a pioneer and very empathetic about topics that people weren't talking about at the time. So, you know, you're looking at, say, the 1960s, there wasn't a lot of discussion of domestic violence, rape treatment centers, really just helping women in ways that were non-traditional. So she was concerned about helping women that didn't have a place. So homeless women, women uh, who've been battered and needed to leave their home with their children. She did a lot of that at a time when it, it wasn't spoken about. And now was not initially considered a very acceptable organization. Being a feminist was a pretty negative word at the time. Now, what made it a little bit easier for Roxy is that she was married and had children. And she embraced that role too, because it was somewhat non-threatening to ask for things if you also had a traditional role. In the early 1970s, Roxy Bolton also advocated for the renaming of hurricanes. At the time, feminine names were exclusively used to identify hurricanes, and she called for an alternating naming system using both male and female names. Dr. Voss. She fought for a lot of causes, but probably the one that got the most national attention was the renaming of hurricanes. It used to be that all hurricanes were named for women, and it started out in a relatively sweet way. Early meteorologists would name hurricanes for their wives as they were tracking them, and then it became a formal practice that all hurricanes were named for women, and she didn't like that because the headline in the newspaper would be something like, female hurricane name destroyed the community, drowned a neighborhood, that sort of thing, and so she reached her limit after very, very bad hurricanes in Miami. Inez in 1966, Gladys in 1968, and Agnes in 1969. She'd had enough. And so she went to the National Weather Bureau to say, I don't like reading these headlines that Agnes destroyed my community. And I love that her solution was that we should name hurricanes after politicians, because politicians often like putting their names on things, you know, uh, streets and buildings. So she thought it would be really great to say, Hurricane Goldwater destroyed the community, you know, that sort of thing. And she was really ridiculed. Um, at the time for making the suggestion. By 1979, they changed the policy to alternate between men's names and women's names. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration ultimately agreed to a new naming system and created an alternating male-female list of names, a system that's still in place today. Roxy Bolton was inducted into the Florida Women's Hall of Fame in 1984. In 1994, she donated her personal papers to the State Archives of Florida in Tallahassee. In 2017, Roxy Bolton died in Coral Gables, Florida, at the age of 90, and was buried in the historic Miami City Cemetery. Today, Roxy Bolton is remembered for her courage, her lifelong dedication to gender equality, and the advancement of women. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society, and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Coco. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, visit us anytime at myfloridahistory.org and on Facebook. 
Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Holly Baker and Connie Lester. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.